This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. Do you have a vision for your life? Have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question, do I have a vision for my life and what is it? I think most people balk about the thought of having a vision for one's life beyond meeting their own needs and beyond their circumstances because they think having a vision is the property of the exclusive few people. Uh, because they think this is for people who really can think big and have big vision and big plans for life. But that's not what I'm talking about. Because in reality, the Scripture is clear. Every child of God, whether you're 50 or 15, you must have a vision for your life. A vision for life can be big or can be small. It doesn't matter. A vision for life can be global or local. It doesn't matter. A vision for life can touch masses of people or just one person. A vision for life can be impacting large numbers or a handful. It doesn't matter. Having a vision for life is not for the exclusive few. Having a vision for your life that has to be God's vision for your life is the call of every child of God. If you claim God to be your Father and Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Lord of your life, you have to have a vision for your life. And that has to be God's vision that He will communicate to you. Why am I saying this? Well, I was thinking about this and uh, I decided to kind of answer my own question by using this great inspirational example, Alice in Wonderland. It will illustrate my point better. (laughs) Let me read to you. Alice was asking her cat, Cheshire, and asked the question, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to go, said the cat. I don't much care where says Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, (laughs) says the cat. If you do not have a vision for your life, God's vision for your life, you will not know where you're going and which way to go. And if you get there, you don't know that you got there. But I think what trips most people about being visionary and having vision for life is the very definition of vision. What is a vision? It is seeing the need and meeting that need. It is that simple. It is seeing the need and meeting the need. That's a vision. Because when God places that need before you, it's because He wants you to meet that need. Wherever you are right now, wherever God has placed you right now, there is a need that God has placed before you. Having the ability to see that need 
and the determination and the purposing in your heart to meet of that need is what makes you to be a visionary person. That's what distinguishes a person from being a person of vision and a person who does not have a vision. Because the truth is this. The vast majority of people can see a need. But the problem is that the very few people who say, by God's grace and by God's power, I am called by God to meet that need. That's the problem. Now listen, I am not saying for a moment (laughs) that the meeting of that need is always easy. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the meeting of the need is without cost. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the price of meeting that need is cheap. I'm not saying that. But your willingness to meet whatever need that God has placed before you is what distinguishes between you as a man and woman, boy or girl of vision, as a child of the living God, and others. That's the distinction. Imagine a parent who has a son or daughter in their mid-twenties who have no goals in life, have no ambitions in life, have no job in life. And they are in the house all day, sleep in, they wake up late, watch television, and they loll about the house doing nothing. You say, that is a heartbreaking thing for a parent. But beloved, listen to me. This is exactly how God feels about His children who have no vision of God in their life. He is heartbroken over those who go to church and then go home and it's over and have no goals to glorify God and to touch the lives of others in their life and see the need. Don't want to meet that need. That's how God feels. I want to share with you a textbook example of what I mean by seeing the need and meeting that need. And it's in the book of Esther. In the Bible, because she was a visionary woman, an ordinary Jewish woman who saw a desperate need and tried to meet that need. Ah, but listen, that did not mean that she was not tempted not to meet the need. Oh, she was tempted. That does not mean that she was not terrified, terrified in trying to meet this need. That did not mean that she was not experiencing times of doubt and anxiety and apprehension. Of course she did before she was being called a visionary woman. But all of these things go with the territories. (laughs) There is nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with you going through the apprehension. There's nothing wrong with you going through this self-doubt at times. But the question is, will you get over that and get on with it? Esther was a Jewish woman living in exile in the Persian kingdom, modern-day Iran. The Persians at that time controlled the entire world. They were the superpower of the day. And through the sovereign intervention of the hand of God, This Jewish woman, this Jewish girl became the wife of the king of Persia. And she became the queen of Persia. Now, being a Jew was a secret. (laughs) And it was a secret that was only known to her and to her uncle, who was also her guardian, 
by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai taught Esther. He brought her up, and he taught her the Word of God. He taught her the Scripture. He taught her and reminded her to be faithful to Jehovah God in the palace. He taught her and reminded her to be faithful to Jehovah God in the midst of a pagan environment in that palace. Mordecai himself worked in the palace, and therefore he was a role model. He set the example for her how he refused to compromise with his environment. Mordecai refused to be swept off his feet by the trappings of power. Mordecai refused to compromise his convictions, even at the threat of his own life and the life of his entire group of people. Now let me tell you the story. You see, in those days of King Xerxes on the throne of Persia, there was a favored prince. He was number two man. He was second in command by the name of Haman. Haman was an ambitious man. Haman was an egomaniac. Haman was drunk with power. Haman was bloodthirsty. And Haman attempted to eliminate the entire group of people, the Jewish people. They were just not any people. They were the very people through whose loins the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, was to be born. It was a diabolical plan. Why? Simply because Mordecai, a Jew in the palace, refused to bow down to him as a deity. And so Haman decided one day that he would liquidate the entire Jewish race from the face of the earth, not just in the Persian Empire, but throughout the world where they controlled it. And when Mordecai hears of this diabolical plan, when he hears of this diabolical plot, he immediately goes to the Lord in fasting and in prayer. He calls upon Jehovah to come and to save his people. He saw the need, and he began to meet that need. That's what a visionary is. But that's not all. He went and he enlisted his niece. He enlisted the woman that he brought up. He enlisted the queen of Persia into serving the purpose of God. The wife of King Xerxes, known also as Ahasuerus. Two names, it's the same person, the names used interchangeably. And he not only told her about the desperate need that the people are facing, but the desperate need for somebody, for her, to meet that need with him. Queen Esther becomes distort over the whole situation. When she hears the news, she panics over the matter. I want you to hear me right, please. The reason I told you this is a textbook example of what it means to have a vision, God's vision for your life, is because she is someone who actually saw the need, but like most of us, she was tempted not to meet that need. Like most of us, she understood the need, but like many of us, she began to think twice about meeting that need. And who would blame her? I mean, listen, let's be truthful about this. Her life is on the line. Her future is on the line. All that she had worked hard for is on the line. And I wonder, 
I just wonder how many of us, including your pastor, how many of us, when we see a need, we say to ourselves, oh, isn't that too bad? Isn't that too bad? And we just sit back and do nothing about it and about meeting that need. Or you might see a need and say to yourself, oh, I'm going to pray that God would meet that need, right? Oh, I'm going to pray that God would raise somebody to meet that need. (laughs) And meanwhile, with the Holy Spirit's finger going like this, it's you, it's you, it's you. Now you understand that I've been there a few times. (laughs) I've been there a few times. God, the Holy Spirit says, you, you meet the need. I equipped you to meet the need. I qualified you to meet the need. I have gifted you to meet the need. I have blessed you to be able to meet that need. But in interest of rationalizing our not wanting to meet that need, say, I can't do that. I'm just one person. Michael, you don't understand. That would mean that I could risk everything that I worked hard for. Michael, you don't understand. I could be risking my reputation. I could be risking my comfort. I could be risking my income. I could be risking my net worth. I could be risking my security. I could be risking everything. I could be risking my position and possessions. I could be risking everything. That's why Mordecai challenged Esther when she hesitated Like all of us, she hesitated, and he challenged her. Not only of that desperate need, but the desperate need of her to meet that need. And so he said to her, I wish we all memorized those words. He said to her, who knows? God might have brought you to the kingdom for such a time. I believe that with all my heart. I believe God is saying that to every one of us, that he brought you to the kingdom for such a time. Now, beloved friends, listen to me. If you would allow yourself a quiet time to listen to the voice of God, I'm convinced that you would hear him say those words to you. He brought you to the kingdom for such a time. And the very first step of discerning and seeing a need and wanting to meet the need, the very first step of being a man, a woman, boy, or girl of vision is to recognize that God brought you to His kingdom for such a time. That God brought you to His kingdom for a purpose. That God brought you to His kingdom so that you may have His vision and obey His vision. God brought you to His kingdom so that you will be able to see the need and meet the need. Listen to me. Time is of the essence. It really is. I've never met anybody who have come toward the end of their time and have not regretted that they did not more for the Lord. There's no time to waste. Time is fleeting. Listen to what someone had written many years ago, entitled, Who Am I? I haven't always been, 
I will not always be. But right now, I'm on the move, measuring out life. People wait for me. Oh, they submit to me, and they fear me. But no one can stop me except the Lord. Most people think that I am on the move forever, but I'm not. When God stopped me, that will be it. Then it will be too late. Too late to forgive your brother, apologize to your sister, make amends with an old friend. Worst of all, it will be too late to accomplish something great for God. My name is time. And when I come to my end, you will go with me to eternity. Time is of the essence. God brought you to the kingdom for such a time. God brought you to the kingdom that you may have his vision and follow his vision. God brought you to his kingdom so that you may make a difference in somebody else's life. Only sin and disobedience will blind you to that fact. Only focusing on your problems and your needs are going to blind you to the fact that you desperately need to see God's vision for your life. Now, you can turn to the Bible. The book of Esther, chapter 4. Look at verses 15 and 16. And as you're looking, let me tell you what you're going to be reading. As Esther finally realized this desperate need and God's call upon her life to meet this need, as she realized God's vision for her life, here's what she said. Then Esther sent a reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Sosa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And here's what you need to put three or four lines under those words. And if I perish, I perish. You see, you're supposed to give the king, even though you're a queen, you're supposed to give the king 30-day notice before you come into his presence. Now, he can call you and you can come in, but you cannot go and see the king. 30 days notice. That's the laws of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be changed, not even for a queen. (laughs) And it's against the law for her under the circumstances to go barging in into the king's palace. And the king's throne. And that's why it says it was under, against the law. And she said, if I perish, I perish. Now, beloved, listen to me. This is risking everything for God. This is risking everything in trusting of her God. Mordecai's challenge to Esther can be boiled down to this. Listen carefully. He said to her, ask yourself the question... Why are you in the palace to begin with? 
Why did you, a Jewish woman, become the queen of Persia to begin with? Why are these privileges and blessings given to you by God? Why, when there are so many beautiful and qualified women in the kingdom, did God give you that honor? Why are you in that place of influence, in the place of impact, in the place of great position? Why are you so blessed of God? That's the question. That's the question. So that you may have a vision, God's vision, and save the entire Jewish nation. Listen, I know you and I will never have that kind of magnitude in terms of our ministries and our impacting in the lives of others. But listen to me, as far as God is concerned, it makes no difference. His vision for you and your obedience to that vision is just as important as that of Esther. That's God's perspective. And so let me challenge you with the same challenge that Mordecai presented to Esther. Whoever you are, wherever you are, God has saved you from sin and death for a purpose. God has given you the spiritual gifts, those unique gifts for a purpose. God has blessed you so uniquely for a purpose. God has placed you where you are for a reason. God has given you the privileges and the opportunities that you have for a reason. God has given you the job that you have for a reason. God has given you the family that you have for a reason. God has given you the resources that you have for a reason. What will you do with them? Will you see the need and look the other way? Or will you see the need and with God's power and God's strength and God's grace, you meet that need? I'm convinced that in the last day, the Bible talks about the white throne judgment, where all the believers are going to be giving account on their lives. And I'm convinced on that great day, God will not ask you, for your Dun and Brad Street's rating. He will not. He will not ask you for the statement of your net worth. He will not be asking you how many conferences and how many conventions did you attend. He will not be asking you that. He will be asking you, what have you done with the resources and the blessings that I've given you? What have you done with the time that I have placed in your hand? What have you done with the money that I have placed in your hands? What have you done with the talents that I have given you? What have you done with the need that I have placed before your eyes? And here's the challenge for you. If every one of us will multiply ourselves just in one other person in a year's time, I promise you, I promise you, we can change the city for Jesus Christ. We can change the country, the world. You say, Michael, are you crazy? No. There were 12 yahoos who were committed to Jesus Christ, and the Bible said they turned their world upside down. And the reason I say that, because I'm a yahoo too. I really am. Because of their commitment, God saw fit to turn the Roman Empire upside down. 12 men. Listen, God has brought you to the kingdom for such a time. See, vision is not exclusive to the preachers and the pastors and those in full-time ministries. No, no, no. 
vision is for every child of the living God, whether you're 50 or 15. God has brought you to the kingdom for such a time. God wants you to have his vision for your life. Will you say, Lord, I'm not going to look away. Lord, I will not wait until somebody else meet that need. Will you say, by your grace, Lord, by your power, by your strength, I will meet the need. I'll be your servant. I'll be your spokesman. But you know, there may be somebody here today who have never committed their life to Jesus Christ. They've never received him as Savior and Lord. You've got to begin here. Because God wants you, wants to save you eternally. Then he wants to give you a vision and use you. Today you can say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Francis Havergale wrote that song many years ago. Although she was churchgoer, she really has never committed her life to Jesus Christ and received the vision for her life until December 2nd, 1873. And on every December 2nd, subsequent years, she would invite all her friends. She was a woman of means. She was a wealthy lady. And they would sing this hymn on the anniversary of her salvation, an anniversary of catching a vision. But then she wrote all of the stanzas except the last one. And they sing that one. The last one was not written until years later. Because every time she sang the song, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. The Lord says to her, Francis, you have these jewels in your drawer that are of immense value. I want you to give them to me. Take my hand. Take my feet. And God says, the jewels. Take my tongue and let it praise you. Your jewels. And finally, she opened those magnificent jewels that were inherited from generations, picked up only two of immense value because of the connection, what they meant to her, one from her cousin, one from her mother. And she kept those, and she took the box, wrapped it up, and she walked it into the Church Missionary Society, CMS, we call it, in England, handed it to them. Ah, then she was able to go home and write the last stanza. Take my silver and my gold. Father God, there's so many of us who might have silver and gold that is not really metal, we have things that are so dear and cherished to us. We might even have people who are dear and cherished. And we don't want to give up anything. And yet the finger of your Holy Spirit keeps pointing. You have been brought to the kingdom for such a time. Lord, I pray that each one of us would say, here it is, Lord. If I perish, I perish. Lord, we know you don't want us to perish. It's not your desire for us. David said, can the dust praise you? You want to use us. And so I pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit will move in free formation 
and touch every heart, the hard heart, the soft heart, the difficult heart, the easy heart. Only you know our hearts, Lord, individually. And your Holy Spirit has a tailor-made word for each of us. 